0: All right, so tonight we are moving forward in covering the five basic phrases that sum up reformed soteriology, or Calvinism, in the, the TULIP acronym. And this time we are on to irresistible grace. And we may come back to more verses that um, get raised as objections against this teaching. We might go to some of the ideas, that sort of thing, especially if you guys have any that we haven't covered that you want to hear covered. But mostly we 'll just continue to sprinkle those in as we go. We hope to keep it a little bit shorter tonight for the sake of singing practice, and that shouldn 't really be a problem because we 've already laid all the groundwork for the basic understanding behind this aspect of reformed soteriology. This asp- irresistible grace is almost already been taught in the total depravity section uh, because at the heart of this is the simple understanding that regeneration precedes faith and we 've given tons of attention to that grace produces holiness in us that is the idea the holiness and any good thing that we do faith repentance good works all of that comes from grace grace comes first or if we stated it the most obviously the fruit of the spirit come from the holy spirit producing the fruit in us they are fruit faith is a fruit repentance is a fruit good works are fruit all of that is fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit acts first. That's really the idea behind this. Irresistible grace is the application of Christ's work to the elect by the Holy Spirit. The Father ordains all things. He ordains our salvation. He predestines it. He, he does the election. The Son accomplishes. The Spirit applies. Irresistible grace is that application of Christ's work. His work begins with causing us to be born again. And all of this was already argued for when we covered total depravity. So they, they probably should have been done uh, together. Because everything we covered relating to total depravity and about faith and repentance being gifts that we receive, all that, that whole argumentation and regeneration preceding faith, all that is directly linked to irresistible grace. They're, they're, they're paired together. And we, we, if I had thought ahead, I, I would have put those two together here, and we would be on to Perseverance of the Saints, but um, it's fine. I, I could always reorder it in the series online if we wanted, but irresistible grace is most closely related to those doctrines because they're necessary corollaries. Because of our inability, because we are spiritually dead, grace must come first, and it must be effectual. Effectual grace is probably the better name for it, if you've heard it called that, effectual grace, effective grace, sufficient grace even are better names because irresistible grace is not actually the teaching that grace is not resisted in fact part of the argument is that grace is always resisted everyone resists grace it's not that they don't resist it that we don't resist it it's that grace is not hindered by our resistance it's it's not it's not part of the design that grace has to be not resisted in order to be gracious. It's sort of like trying to, uh, think of it like this, like trying to stop a train by setting a little Lego man on the tracks with a stop sign. That's how grace is in the face of our resistance. The train is not even going to feel it. It's just going to crush it in an instant, and no one's going to feel it. Now, the, Le- the Lego analogy in that, or the, uh, the Lego man in that silly analogy, it, that's not us. The, Le- the Lego man with the stop sign is our resistance, the grace, the resistance to Christ. The way one of my uh, one of my seminary friends is a pastor at a church, and his pastor there with him says, "God through His Holy Spirit makes Himself irresistible to us." That's the idea. God through the Holy Spirit, through regeneration, through that change in our nature, change in our heart, makes Christ irresistible to us. The change isn't in Christ, obviously. The change is in us. So grace does not drag us kicking and screaming to christ what happens in regeneration is an opening of our eyes and ears to the reality of christ's greatness that's the idea but the point is that god takes the initiative grace comes first he doesn't just you know present the gospel to the world and then sit back and hope that we will come to our senses and follow jesus because look at how Obviously, awesome the gospel is, and how gracious Christ is. Look what He's done for you. That's that's not what God does. He doesn't wait around for our consent or for us to ask Jesus into our hearts. Instead, He does just what He promised He would do in Ezekiel thirty-six. I always remember Ezekiel (laughs) thirty-six. Did I tell you this? Maybe I did. When I when I was first becoming. Reform, somebody was challenging me with it, and they kept saying, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, and they kept saying that. And I was like, what? I couldn't, he- I didn't hear him right, and I thought he was saying Ezekiel 36. I was like, what is Ezekiel 36? And they're like, hey, dumb-dumb. <laughs> Ezekiel, the prophet, chapter 36. I was like, oh. So I always remember Ezekiel 36, and now you will too, hopefully. But Ezekiel 36 is extremely Calvinistic, turns out. So in the context of God speaking of his acts to save for his own namesake. He's saying he's going to do it for his namesake. I'm going to do this. He describes regeneration like this. Now, listen to this in the context of, is God looking for our consent? Is he working together with us? Is he Is he like, okay, now their heart is ready for regeneration because they've come to faith? No. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. It says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. He's doing it. He's making it happen in us by that heart change. And we see this same sort of... I I, I want to call it assertive redemption. We see assertive redemption from Jesus in John 6. He says, But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. He's talking to a mixed multitude here. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So speaking of a people given by the father to the son and the son is saying i'm not going to lose any of those people that the father gave me that's the elect he goes on no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day it is written in the prophets they shall all be taught of god everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me So he's saying, if you've heard and learned from the Father, you are going to come to me. And all those that come to me, they're not going to be cast out. I'm going to keep them. And they can't come unless it's granted by the Father. So John 6 is pretty explicitly Calvinistic. And we're not even done there. And it it may seem somewhat mild in English because it uses that English word of draw. Like draw. When when we hear that, it comes off as kind of mild to us. It's a sort of a coaxing idea. All that come to me, I, I coax to them I entice them it's sort of like a hands-off enticement kind of idea that's the way it sounds in English but this translation of draw is because the verb used by Jesus is the same one used for drawing water out of a well we we use that term we draw water from a well right well we don't entice water out of a well we don't stand at the top of the well and say hey water I'm thirsty would you I want to I want you to come up here can you join with me and maybe consent to me pulling you out of here, the water doesn't cooperate in being drawn out. It's effectively dragged up out of the ground, right? It fights the whole way via gravity. It's just hanging there. The same word is used when Paul and Silas were dragged into prison. The jailer didn't sweetly entice them to come into jail. A crowd grabs them and drags them to prison. This is the force of the word that Jesus used. No one comes to Christ unless the Father drags him or compels him. It's the same word it stands for. Drag or compel are generally the, uh, the, uh, the translations. They have to hear and learn from the Father. And such people come to Christ. Christ. We have to have faith first to come to Christ, right? We have to be granted faith first. Because Hebrews 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. You have to have the faith in order to come to Christ. That's why we come to Christ, because we've been granted faith. That's the whole idea. So when Jesus speaks of hearing and learning of the Father, he's speaking more than merely uh, observing Christ's teaching. Like, oh, I heard it. I, I, I was learning it as Jesus said it audibly with my, it's more than just like the, the act of being there witnessing Jesus teach. And we know this because in this very chapter, there's a large contingent of people that he is speaking to that sat under his teaching and did not believe it. And then Jesus says at the end of that chapter, verses 64 through 65, John 6, but there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning, from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. It is a gift. Things that are granted are gifts. The Father grants it. He reiterates the same idea. Coming to Christ is a gift granted by God. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Conversion is something that God does to us out of love. But as it's pointed out in this chapter, it's only something granted to those given to Jesus by the Father. That's who he grants it to. It's the elect, this, this people group, a people for his own possession that he described all throughout the other lessons that we've talked about. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no universal call for everyone to follow Jesus. Obviously, there is, and we see that as well. Not only does, <clears throat> not only does Jesus openly teach to a crowd of folks that he knew would not believe in John 6, we know that, and he he openly teaches to him. But we also read the famous words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he can say that to anybody. And we can repeat those words of Jesus to anybody. We talked about that. People so often mistake this open invitation, though, As if Jesus is implying or assuming their ability because he makes this universal invitation to everyone, like, Well, if he he only says that if man is able. But just before he said that, he literally praised God for hiding these things from the wise and intelligent, but revealing it to others. He praises God for hiding it, hiding that knowledge of God. Listen to the very verse preceding what we just read. That universal invitation is preceded by this in verse 27 of Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That's as Calvinistic as it gets right there, honestly. Uh, Again... It shows that God takes the initiative. God reveals himself to us. Jesus is literally saying, No one knows God except for whom I reveal it to them. And I choose to do, I will to reveal it to them, and then they know the Father. And remember when we talked about want and desire, it's better to put it in the category of will, what he will do. So God reveals himself to us. He must act first by grace. Grace comes first. Listen to the same truth in how Paul describes his own conversion in Galatians 1.5. Again, listen to this with the ears of, is this man consenting or is God coming and taking over his heart? Galatians 1.15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, there's election for you, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles up to God. When it, was ple- when it pleased him to do it, he did it. And he bases it in election and says it happened to him in time and in history. It was set beforehand, before he was even born. It was already decided he was set apart, and then God does it when it pleased him, when it pleased God. God revealed himself to Paul according to his choice, not according to Paul's choice, obviously. Paul wasn't like going on the road to Damascus, praying for a light to knock him off his horse and blind him. He's on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians when this happened. Paul is not just being, you know, self-deprecating here. He is crediting God with effectual grace. He literally describes exactly what we mean by irresistible grace. God did it when it pleased him. He revealed himself to us. God brings people to himself by revealing himself to them. If we have... If we have confessed Jesus as the son of the living God, just as Peter did, then we must recognize it was because God revealed that to us. Just as Jesus told Peter after he confessed the truth. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now think of this, this is not an intellectual kind of thing of like, Simon Peter intellectually understands Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that's part of it, yes, but it's the acceptance of that and the trusting in him. Because even the demons recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Demons confess that to him, right? So it's more than this intellectual idea of like, oh, I get who he is. No, it's the acceptance of it and and worship of him for it. And that's what he's saying is revealed to Peter. So it's not a mere disclosure of information, this sort of revelation that we're talking about here it's the opening of hearts to respond in faith just as we saw from Lydia when she heard Paul preach in Philippi and we read that in Acts 16:14. this is effectual grace listen to this a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics a worshiper of God was listening and she's hearing the gospel preached what's happening Is she making a choice? Or what does the text tell us? Explicitly, effectual grace. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's effectual grace. That is irresistible grace. Grace that is effectual, that actually does the thing. Grace that opens a heart to do something, to respond. This is what spiritually dead men need if they're ever going to come to faith. We must be born again. This is why we hammered And gave so much attention to regeneration precedes faith because we're spiritually dead and spiritually incapable, spiritually unable, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. That's why we gave so much attention to that because grace has to come first. Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So grace gives us eyes to hear and ears to hear. The, the, The miracles of Jesus healing so many blind and deaf people, it wasn't just by chance. It was meant to be typological. He was actually doing it, and it was literal, but it's also signaling something about our spiritual state as well. And we cannot choose to enter a kingdom that we can't even see. We have to have our eyes opened to it. This work of the Spirit is not a response to us asking for it. It's not a response to us humbling ourselves. The Spirit is not going around responding to people's choices to follow Christ. Rather, according to Jesus, he goes wherever he wants, and he's actually quite unpredictable. An unconverted person can come into this church for 40 years, and one of those sermons that preaches the gospel may convert him. We don't know when. We can't predict it. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's according to him, his own will. We don't know the will of the Spirit and who he's going to go and save and when they're going to do it. Never once is there a promise that the Spirit will come, cause us be, to be born again if we will only choose to believe. That is not part of Scripture. The exact opposite is actually the case. We've pointed this out already, but it bears repeating here. There's multiple verses that, that tell us this. First John 5, 1 John 5.1 Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And that whoever, we know that, that, that it's literally just all the ones believing, all the ones believing that Jesus is the Christ. That whoever doesn't imply ability or, or some kind of spiritual capacity to believe, it literally means all the ones believing that Jesus is the Christ. And here's the trick, uh, the grammatical part that's so important. Have been born of God previously. The reason they believe now is because they have been born of God. And we see the same grammatical fact stated in verse John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It says is born of him, but the the literal grammar is has been born of him. And that's why this this grammar matters, because it does set things chronological. When we recognize this, this verb tense that John deliberately uses... We can see that all the ones that are in a current, ongoing state of belief, state of faith in God, all such people have been previously born of God. The act of being born again is the source of the faith. It is the source of the righteousness. And it's a grammatical fact that believing now this present, active participle, ongoing process, or ongoing act, is a result of having been previously born of God in the perfect passive indicative. I know that's nerdy grammatical stuff, but the perfect tense is meaningful. it's, It's past of the past, meaning it happened in the past. So if somebody said to me, hey, Traver, had you been born again when you were 20 years old? Had that happened to you at that point in the past? No, I'm 41. So in the past, at age 20, had I had an event that already took place. I would state it in the perfect tense. I, I would say, I had been at that point in time, been born again. So I'm saying in that past, there was a past that took place already, a past event of that, of that past time. We don't really have a, a perfect tense in English that, that we kind of just use helper verbs and say it uh, with smashing verbs together and it works. Um, but that's what perfect tense is doing in the Greek. Those believing had been born again before their believing. Grammatically, it's literally grammatically a fact in the New Testament that regeneration precedes faith. And I know we've gone through all that already. And it's also in the passive, meaning it happened to us. We were passive in receiving it. It's something that happened to us. Like if you get shot, that's a passive act. Somebody else did it to you right? And being born again is a spirit acting on us. It's passive. Happened from the outside. It's not an action that we do. It's an action that happened to us. So our knowing that Christ is righteous and doing righteousness ourselves from 1 John 2 29 is because we were previously born again. It's very literal that God caused us to be born again and that is the reason we believe. And this is how Peter describes it. 1 Peter 1 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. We didn't cause it by a choice or by asking for it or by asking Jesus into our heart. It it, it cannot be according to mercy if it's owed to us for believing. If, if, If God says, do this and I'll give you this. And then we do that thing and he gives us that thing. Then that is not according to mercy. That's according to law. He owes it to us if he promises it upon some act that we do so it can't be according to mercy if if it's done in response to something we do it can't be for us humbling ourselves or asking jesus into our heart we are not born again due to the will of the flesh or the will of man but of god's choice to grant us mercy and that's what john says in john one but as many received him to them he gave the right to become children of god even to those who believe in his name who were born not of the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. And the sequence is right there. God chooses to make us be born again. Once again, it's a past act that we receive. And as a result of that, we receive Christ. We believe in him. Faith, we have faith. Again, a present participle. And as a result, we are then justified. We are adopted as children of God. We're given the right to be children of God. Based on that. None of that is based on our will. We did not decide to be born again. It is God's will that brings forth faith in us. It brings us forth in faith, we could even say. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. It's the exercise of his will that we are brought forth in faith. And this, as it rightly says in all the Reformed catechisms, We must have our minds enlightened and our wills renewed. That's what regeneration does. Regeneration does just that. And as a result, we are compelled or we are dragged to Christ. Once we know his greatness, we cannot resist him. We are utterly persuaded to embrace him. I cannot deny that Jesus is Lord any more than I can deny 2 plus 2 equals 4. I could say the words, but I can't make myself believe that 2 plus 2 is not 4. And I cannot make myself believe that Jesus is not Lord. I know that he is. I know it. And I can't convince myself otherwise. I'm compelled to follow Christ. And we point all this out as we went through Ephesians last year because it's quite prominent in in chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were in this state of spiritual deadness, and then he acts to make us alive. And from that spiritual life come spiritual things, faith, repentance, and good works. So whatever precedes our rebirth must, by necessity, come from a state of spiritual deadness whatever it is if we're not born again yet that's coming from a state of spiritual deadness i don't think anybody wants to say their faith came from a state of spiritual deadness that doesn't make any sense scripture doesn't treat it like a thing that can even happen So we're not going to go over that entire lesson of total depravity all over again, proving that point. But we are pointed back to the plethora of verses describing man's inability prior to regeneration. We would have to go revisit those because that'll be the the whole question, man's ability, and we'll just return right back to total depravity. It's also why we use that biblical analogy of Lazarus. Lazarus. It's the perfect analogy, in my opinion. The grace that brought Lazarus back to life was irresistible grace. He didn't ask to be resuscitated. Jesus didn't give him the offer of life and say, hey, if you would be willing to come back to life, I'll raise you back to life. And Lazarus is like, well, let me consider the thought. I don't like being dead. I would like to be alive. Yep, I'll take you up on that, Jesus. Uh, let's, let's be alive again. That's not how it works. Jesus brought Lazarus to life for his own glory. He compelled him to come out of the grave. Excuse me. He compelled him to come out of the grave by bringing him to life. How do you compel a dead man to come out of a grave? Well, if you make him alive, he's going to look around and say, I don't like being in a grave where dead people are. I'm going to come out. Now he says Lazarus, come forth. So it's going to happen, but he's drawn out of the grave by way of being given new life. Jesus doesn't ask his permission. It was not done in response to Lazarus asking for it. Obviously he couldn't do that. He's dead. It was unprovoked. But Christ's Grace to him was irresistible, meaning Jesus chose to act. That's the idea. That's the idea of irresistible grace. This is why it's the perfect analogy for our own rebirth. The the new life that we receive is unprovoked. He doesn't check with us. He compels us to come out of the grave by giving us life because we don't want to live in sin when we are spiritually alive. We say, I want to follow Christ. I don't want to live in my sin anymore. I want to be washed of this. Or as the the hymn writer, I think it's Charles Wesley, wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light. Thine, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's it. That's it right there. That's what we mean. We wake up in new life, spiritually. We wake up with the chains broken. And as a result, we rise and follow Christ. It's not that we do not make a choice. This is one of the big misnomers of it. It's not that we don't make a choice. It's that our correct choice is preceded by God's choice to effectually call us. It's his act. His granting of effectual grace makes our choice correct. Makes us make the right choice. Remember that very uh, early quote that we had from Augustine. To will is human to will a right is grace to make the right choice is because of grace just as jesus told his disciples you did not choose me but i chose you it's not that they didn't make any choice to follow jesus they're doing that of their own will they're making a a moral choice to follow christ right he's not he's not saying like literally you're you're automatons here it's that their choice was not the decisive decider in that happening he didn't say, who's going to follow me? And then these 12 guys step forward and he says, all right, I'll choose you because you chose me. No, he says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you first. And that's why you're following me. It was only his choice that made our choice possible. We choose the right thing because he chose to act to reveal it to us. First John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. We love Christ, but it's because he first loved us. We come to Christ loving him, turn to him in faith loving him for what he did because he first loved us and chose to act. That's what the whole foreknowing idea is. It's an act of love. It's not that we don't love. It's that our love is the result of the love that we received first. We've already cited this verse too, but it applies here. Philippians 2:12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who has worked in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." So it's not that we don't do anything regarding our salvation. That's not the idea. It's just that God works in us to will the right thing. To will a right is of grace. We come to faith because he's done the work of regeneration in us. We become more like Christ because he does the work of sanctification in us. We persevere in the faith because he does the work of preserving us which is what we're going to talk about next week. Remember, the debate against Rome in the Reformation, that whole world-changing event, the debate with Rome was not whether or not grace was necessary. It was whether or not grace is sufficient. Is grace enough, or do we have to add to it? Is it effectual or not? Is it a tool that we can utilize, we can choose to take up whenever we will to, or does grace save By itself. Is grace enough or must we add to it? Is the real question. And the Bible teaches an effectual grace. Our confession teaches an effectual grace. This church preaches an effectual grace. A Christ that does not need permission to take over our heart. By way of his spirit. He takes a battering ram against our stony hearts. And he plants his flag, and he says, this is mine now. This is my heart now. I'm going to dwell here now. This is my house. He comes, and he takes it over. And that's an act of mercy to us, that he is not looking for our consent, because he'll never find it, because grace is what produces the consent. He has to be there first. When he renovates the heart, then we're like, oh, this is much better. I was living in filth and squalor, and I like this beautiful heart now that you've given me. Praise God that he's willing to, you know, knock us off a horse and blind us so that he's willing to raise us up so that we can see. His grace does not wait for our consent. It produces our consent by changing our hearts. That is irresistible grace. So it's kind of a funny name for it, but that's what we mean by it. Any questions about that? Yep. 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 So according to our soteriology, how would you fundamentally explain grace? Because I feel like that, amongst us, we just say grace, and sometimes within the context, we might mean salvation, regeneration, uh, redemption. And you know, we 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 use the word grace, and it, depending on context, is very broad. Yeah. So I mean, fundamentally how, how, how you define grace so if i can give a catechetical answer what is grace god's favor on us in spite of our sin that deserves condemnation god's favor on us in spite of our sin that deserves condemnation so it's his entire disposition to love us no matter what even though we're sinful he is determined to love us. Now we do act, we, we, or we speak of each of those acts like regeneration is a grace. So we use it in that sense too of like, oh, that is gracious of God to do that thing. Or, or he graced me with this, he graced me with that. And the whole idea of it's being a gift. But in, the, in the, you know, the broad scope, the bird's eye view of it is he's willing, not just willing, he's determined to love a people unworthy of love. And make them into Christ-likeness, even though their sin makes them worthy of condemnation. So it's, it's his determination to do that. The way that Armenians speak of it is it's sort of like a, um, an offer. They speak of it as an offer. It's like, freely take this up if you want. It's there for you. If you do your part, To m- you can use this. It's a very powerful tool if you do your part to come and use it. We, we don't look at it that way. We look at it as it, it's effectual. It actually does the thing. It actually produces holiness. Not like it's a useful tool to take up to produce holiness. It's the thing that produces the holiness, period. So that's kind of the difference between us. They do speak about it different. Because I think they have a misconception of what it is. They are. This is why this debate is is actually really important. It talks about, it's the character of God and things like the very definition of what grace is. Is grace effectual? I mean, ultimately, the Arminians were seen as returning to the Roman conception of salvation. That was the whole, all the reformers were like, this, we just got out of Rome, and you're going back to their entire idea of what grace is like. It's like a medicine for sick people. And we're saying, no, it's not. It literally revives dead people. Medicine doesn't help a dead person. They're dead. We're saying it actually revives them, brings them back to life. That's what grace does. It's, just not, it's not a medicine that, you know, should you take, choose to take the medicine, it'll help you, possibly, if you do it the right way in the right form. You know, it's not, it's not that. That's the difference between Rome and the Reformation, and that's still the difference between Arminianism and Reformed theology now. So, I mean, that really was the argument. In fact, what we're going to do eventually here, is I actually want to do a little bit of a historical survey about the Council of Orange, where it talked about semi-Pelagianism, where the very early church you will see, or not very early, but the early church is still in general. um, The early church condemned this idea of what ultimately became Arminianism, the heart of Arminianism. And we're going to cover a little bit of the history about Jacob Arminius himself. He was a bit of a snake. So... We're gonna add some history portion onto this at the very end after we've done the doctrine part because it's super interesting and worth having out there and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right in seeing that they have a different conception of grace itself, yep. Oh. So that, yeah, that's not a definition of faith, for instance. That's a description of faith. Um, and th- those are technically different things. Because, so, for instance, in Hebrews 11, it's believing without seeing. That's, the, that's what... Yes. With faith. Yes. Yeah. So people turn that into, well, then faith is believing in spite of evidence to the contrary. They're like, no, no, no. It's 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 believing a promise with evidence of something that you haven't seen realized yet. So, for instance... Uh, um, uh, christ is going to return we have all kinds of evidence that christ was real and it, he's worthy of being believed you know but we don't see the, the the actual accomplishment of his promise so we see descriptions of grace and we kind of collectively put those together to form a definition of grace but the Bible's not written as a systematic theology where we can just say this is look this verse says this is what grace is it's one of those things that you kind of collectively put together sort of like the doctrine of the trinity you collect how the bible speaks about it to form a definition. Using the descriptors. So that would be like, Kermen, be the- yeah, or it's a systematic theology of what grace is. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, interesting that you bring that up because uh, you, you mentioned John six forty four, and I've used that with Arminian uh folks, and their immediate response is to go to John twelve. Oh yeah, if I be lifted up, I draw all men to me. Yeah, right. yeah. But Doesn't make sense. However you understand draw, when Jesus says it in John, it's the third time, he ends this uh, with the clause, I will raise it up on the last day. Yeah, And it's like, it's picking up in the golden chain of redemption. It's like, I will draw in such a way, yeah. that on the last day, you're going to be raised down. Exactly. So It's another instance where they try to make all universal and it doesn't work because there's. How does Jesus draw all men to Him if some people die having never heard of Him? It has to be all men without distinction, not all men without exception. So, yes, Jesus draws people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation because He has people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and all those that He draws will come to Him, and He will never cast them out. That's the whole. Yeah, it's this unbroken chain of salvation. So, yeah, they do that. They play. They play word games and then they get caught up in so like you know you don't literally believe that right you can't explain to me how Jesus draws someone that never heard of him sorry we got another one so 36 chapter 5 Jesus on the thing thing it was regarding Jesus about being assertive and then what was the more about him being assertive yes Look, i thought there was a word that came out that describe him oh assertive redemption I made that up, so I I don't know. If somebody checks me on that, then they're probably right. But yeah, I I, I think assertive redemption is a good description of effectual grace or, or the idea of what we should have of... You know, it's like the parent that is going to save their child that's in danger. You know, we talk about the child running into the street. We don't go to the edge of the street and coax them, entice them. We'll grab them. We're going to drag them out of the street, kicking and screaming. And then a car will go by and they'll be like, that car would have hit you. Do you see why I saved you? And then they're like, oh, thank you. Now I see. My eyes are open to the the danger that I was in. Yeah, an assertive redemption, an assertive protection of that child. That's how we speak of salvation. Jesus assertively saves. That's Yeah, that's what I meant by that of redemption probably doesn't fit the acrostic of tulip. We'll have to. There's all kinds of alternative names that probably make technically more sense. But okay. Anything else before? Okay. Good deal. Let's pray, and then uh, we can clean this up, and we'll gather together to sing in about about seven forty-five, six forty, seven seven forty-five. Okay. So oh, unless you wanted to sing uh, that hymn that I quoted. But it's kinda long. So, we had that song. Anyway, so uh, Oh that song? We had our that, song we're that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Let's pray, guys. Lord God in heaven, we are thankful for a grace that actually works. Where it is not dependent on us to make it useful or to take it up and figure it out. It's not up to us to add our own works or deeds or will to it but it is a grace that effectually works to change our hearts and to change us we thank you for being assertive in saving us for loving us so deeply that you're willing to come and conquer our sinful wills and change out our hearts to put your spirit within us and write your law upon our hearts without our consent but because you love us and you know that is better for us we thank you for that we didn't know better we didn't figure it out It was all you. It was all of grace. And we worship you and praise you for this work. We praise your name. Thank you for the work of the Spirit and for Christ and for your mercy, Father. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.